All right, howdy folks, and welcome back to another episode. Today we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, Evan McMullen. I don't even have an official intro made up here. Uh, Evan is a brilliant meta thinker, you know, integrative genius and uh, psychedelic enthusiast, uh, systems thinker extraordinaire, complexity aficionado. Uh, what else am I missing, Evan? Um, well, I, I suppose I have a day job, which is um, uh, some sort of uh, mechatronics virtualization engineer, but that's neither really here nor there for the purposes of this discussion. And I, I think you got a pretty good picture painted there, though, uh, an overly rosy one, if I do say so myself. Either way, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. So thanks so much for uh, coming on and talking to us. Happy um, to love to be here. And uh, like I was saying uh, before we uh, got the recording rolling, I really do love this project and uh, think, you know, this is this is really important work you guys are doing. So I'm happy, happy to support it and uh, happy to be a part of it. There it is. There it is. Well, thank you, brother. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm curious from what you've seen, from what you understand of this project, what do you think of it? How, how would you describe what we're up to here? Well, um, People that know me know that I'm kind of a, an etymology geek, you know, um, and so I, I like to think of the actual roots of, of, of these words, meta ideological politics, right? So if we take, you know, politics to start with, right, this comes from the Greek polis, um, and then through a word, uh, you know, politeis, which means basically a citizen of a city or a city state. And so politics, um, you know, we get from Aristotle, from his top politica, basically the affairs of state, the affairs of the citizenry, right? So politics, that's pretty clear what it is. Ideological. Now, this is a fascinating word because the word idea, we have a sense of what it means in English, but where did we get this word ideological from? Well, idea is also a word in Greek, and it basically means a form or pattern. I want to kind of seize on the pattern and form aspect of this. It's, you know, something I have feelings about as a Buddhist. Um, and so um, then the, the logia part, of course, is like a, a speech, a doctrine, discourse, a, a theory about this, right? So it's, it's a, an ideology as a particular kind of formed or patterned theory, right? So we've got ideological politics. So this is a sort of formed or patterned theory about the affairs of state. And then, well, meta, what does meta mean? It means beyond. Right. So again, I'm very happy with this direction as a sort of Buddhist because it means we're going beyond form and pattern into the realm of nebulosity, say, or emptiness. Um, and, you know, according to me, basically most of the um, of the uh, issues we face as a, as a country, as, as a globe um, at this point have something to do with getting stuck in fixing, reifying particular forms and patterns of politics. So the sort of meta ideological move just by the very derivation of the word seems to me to be the obviously correct thing to be doing. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm very, very happy that you guys picked that particular label for your project and having known you for a while now, Ryan, I think, you know, it's not just the name. I think you kind of embody the spirit of this thing too, you know, through the mimetic mediation type work and so on, you know, um, that, that there's something about this sort of, you know, well, non-duality of, of emptiness and form, bring a little bit more of the, the, uh, the emptiness, um, dare I say a little bit more of what's often referred to as a sort of feminine or yin energy into the political realm when everything's become so sort of like hardened and sort of yang based, um, you know, in our society, at least uh, if you turn on the news or go on Twitter, that's most of what you see. So this sort of softening, you know, um, of, of our political forms seems to be really what's needed in the moment. So I'm, I'm excited to be here and, uh, and excited about the project in general. Wow, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful description. You know, there's something you said on a STOA session. Uh, it was during Layman Pascal's STOA session. 
and you asked him a couple of questions. I don't know if you remember what you asked him, but one of your concerns was about this kind of founder effect where if a, the political persuasions of the initial group of people starting a project tend to take in a certain kind of direction, right? A kind of path dependent trajectory where you have a feedback loop that aggregates more of the same type of thinkers. And what you're alluding to is your concern of kind of uh, left-wing positive feedback loop that then kind of ruins what we're trying to do of a truly kind of transpartisan uh, meta-perspectival form of politics, right? That kind of left bias will kind of accrue. And so I took that really seriously because I think you're spot on. And that's why I'm doing this with Nate, who is a Republican and a conservative. And so we're, we're hoping that by us, the two of us starting this together, kind of like the uh, the hill rising with, uh, now, now it's not called rising anymore, what Crystal and Sagar is, uh, now it's called breaking points, I think, right? They have a similar kind of uh, dynamic going. And I'm just, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, or if you can expand about that concern and what we can do about it going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think so. That was the one concern that I sort of presenced in that session with Lehman, because, you know, my, my impression of, of the particular things he was talking about is that, say, you know, integral theory is, is historically kind of a, a creature of the left, not inherently, but you look at the sort of people that end up living in Boulder and hanging out with Ken and like, well, you know, this is sort of uh, more left leaning people on average, right? I think this is fascinating to look at in juxtaposition with, say, the sense making web, the sort of, you know, communities centered on things like rebel wisdom and the stoa, you know, um, uh, maybe last year, maybe a little bit more than a year ago at this point, Peter uh, was sending around an article, I think he linked to it on Twitter or something like that, um, where people had sort of surveyed, um, <clears throat> you know, all these different YouTube channels, basically, and did some sort of political science or anthropology type study of them and labeled them uh, according to their political affiliation. And according to this, like, you know, the uh, Stoa and, and Rebel Wisdom sphere is like alt-right or kind of hard right or something like that. And, you know, well, I mean, there's some truth to this, actually, right? You know, um, I talked to friends who are into sense-making, but not part of the sense-making scene. And and it's a pretty common belief that the Stoa is kind of center-right, you know, um, as far as its affiliation and leaning um, and the sort of people that that would mainly attract. Now, it's obviously a lot more complex than that. So is rebelism, right? Um, and obviously the integral scene is a lot more complex than just being a straight, you know, stalking horse for the Democratic Party or something like that. But these correlations do sort of still exist. And I think that, you know, you see this in the context of when we're trying to do sense making together in these digital spaces, you know, it's pretty reliable, for example, on the STOA that if I'm in a breakout room um, with some people and, and a topic comes up surrounding what you might refer to as critical theory, social justice, this sort of cluster of ideas, a lot of people have what I would call some trauma relating to that, you know just look at the demographics of rebel wisdom and the stoa and it's like well it's disproportionately white guys like me right and um you know so a lot of us have some 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 trauma surrounding um the ways that the perspectives of critical theory which i personally find to be incredibly valuable have been i would say sort of unfortunately weaponized in an unprincipled way um as part of you know this culture war culture war 2.0 whatever you want to call it <clears throat> and then um similarly you know, so you've got some people who may be more naturally inclined um, because of some trauma around the current identitarian left to sort of align with a more center right or alt right type of, of, of thought bubble, right? And then similarly, on, on the left side of things, you've got people, some of our mutual friends, in fact, right, who will be delivering some fairly trenchant and, you know, according to me, pretty accurate leftist critiques of scenes like Game B and the Sense Making Web and Rebel Wisdom. 
and who will be basically rejected out of hand. I mean, you know, I'm not going to name too many names here, but you frequently hear people in the sense-making space talking about postmodernism or post-structuralism, deconstructionism, critical theory, that whole, you know, um, sort of affiliated set of, of, of perspectives as being one, obvious bullshit, and two, no, I've never read any of it. Hmm, that doesn't sound like sense-making to me. So, you know, I see a problem space that involves even in these sort of rarefied meta spaces that a lot of times people are talking past each other. People won't read each other's books, you know, um, they won't engage with each other's intellectual traditions. And, you know, for me, like, for me, the way I approach religion and politics both is that, you know, I have to be able to read the other guy's Bible. I've got to be able to read the other guy's platform. And if I freak out about that, or if I can't bring myself to read it, then, you know, that says more about me than it does about the other guy. So that's kind of where I'm sitting from here. Now, one of the images I wanted to promote with this podcast is, I'll just comment really quickly and you can jump in, is I'm reading Robin D'Angelo and Roger Scruton on the other hand. I'm reading Karl Marx and Ludwig von Mises on the other hand. And I do take that to heart, right? And part of the meta-ideological philosophy or attitude, right, is these are just sets of ideas. These are certain perspectives that we can play with, that we can mine for signal that we can use to extract salient nuggets from the system that we would have otherwise overlooked or not seen, right? So there's a kind of fluidity here, there's kind of playground here, and there's a kind of de-reification, de-ossification of these idea structures that we see so often, you know, calcified in our polarized cultural moment, right? So that's very much the spirit that we're trying to project here and see, see who wants to play with us. Go ahead, Nate. I think that, um, that fluid word just and you've mentioned it, Ryan, and earlier, Evan, you mentioned something about softness and bringing in this yin energy. And fluid mode is, of course, what David Chapman calls his, um, is the kind of finalized stance of being, I won't say stage, because we've been critical of stage theory here and, and throughout uh, the whole metasphere, you know, that's a whole dialogue that I'd rather avoid, what's called stance. Um, and it, it involves a kind of softness. Um, but I was watching to refresh your bridge sessions earlier today. And uh, you don't, you don't uh, center politics within, within that. I, I wonder if you think there is a, a way in which politics can serve as a bridge um, toward that sort of fluid mode of thinking. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, so, you know, there's, there's this phrase that's been around for a long time that the personal is political. Right. And this is often used to justify starting a lot of political, you know, uh, fights about matters which are normally taken to be personal. But I think there's a much more positive way to look at that, that phrase, the personal is political, which is that how we relate to each other um, across political divides speaks to personal attributes that we may or may not have that do have to do with adult development and emotional integration and shadow work and things like that. So, um, you know, there's a quote from Ram Das. Um, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but he basically says something, and I think it's be here now about how well. So if you think you're really enlightened, go spend a week with your parents, right? And I think one of the reasons for this is because people tend to have some often significant political disagreements with their parents, especially if they're of the sort of socioeconomic classes where it's normal to leave the house at 18, go to college, move across the country, this sort of thing. You're kind of in your own sphere, your own bubble, and then you know, like this sort of divide tends to crop up or the whole, you know, stereotypical, like the uncle who ruin, ruins Thanksgiving dinner because of his political opinions, right? Well, what if you could relate to an uncle who's totally opposite of you and the political divide 
at Thanksgiving dinner such that it, it didn't ruin the dinner, that it provided a sort of opportunity to create a bridge between your perspectives, to share a, a maybe even a little bit of a transperspectival moment um, with your family, you know, then, then to me, I definitely see, like, I don't know that the practice of politics and our current, you know, what, what does that word mean normally? Well, like the normal reference is some sort of like partisan bloodbath. I mean, I don't really see that as a bridge to anything valuable, but practicing mimetic mediation in the political sphere, the political realm, practicing a meta ideological approach to politics, that definitely seems super promising as, as a practice domain to work to greater levels of, of human capacity, for sure. I think it's interesting starting this because we, we, Nate and I thought a lot about contrasting ourselves with other approaches, other political approaches kind of that came out of the metasphere uh, and contrasting ourselves with them to clarify our unique value proposition, right? And I think one of my quips with metamodernism, with integral forms of politics, and et cetera, is that even if these models of thinking are supposed to be kind of what we're trying to promote here, right? Taking multiple perspectives, having a larger, you know, holistic view of society and complex systemic realities and so forth. There is still a kind of inevitable reification of these models, right? There still was a kind of what Tada Hozumi calls ideological monocropping effect, where certain figures, I'm, I'll, I will name someone who I have some beefs with, uh, Jeff Salzman of the <laughs> integral uh, uh, life uh, community, like, when he talks about politics, everything is just kind of reduced to spiral dynamics or colors, right? And to me, that's just like, it's not actually creating any kind of new insight or really borrowing you know, important uh, perspectives from other political ideological camps like anarchism, Marxism, libertarianism, traditional conservatism, socialism, and so forth. And so part of what I wanted to promote was a much more open process focused, uh, communally focused, kind of method of politics um, that still contains a spirit of a lot of these kind of meta movements, right? But not providing too much upfront with this is all the things we believe. And this is how, you know, you're going to, you're now going to use this lens in the kind of totalizing way and stuff everything into this kind of procrustean bed of a heuristic. And I still see that problem happening in a lot of metamodernism and integral and that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, you're reminding me of something that happened in the little um, community that I started running. Um, people were interested in having a space to discuss um, the bridge sessions I did on the STOA and didn't want to, um, I didn't want to take over the STOA's Discord server with a ton of channels that, you know, back when that still existed. So I created my own and um, relatively quickly, people went super hard in the direction of reifying the fuck out of Keegan stages as the lens. Now I happened to use those and my first bread session. I chose them because, well, five stages is easier to fit into a short session than all of the spiral dynamic stages or the stages model has what, like 12 or something like that, you know? Um, I'm probably getting that wrong, but it's got more. Um, so, you know, I was trying to sort of indexically point at the existence of stages of adult development or, or a progress of adult development that says something like you turn 18 or you turn 21 
you're probably not done growing and evolving as a human being. There are probably capacities that you could eventually have that you don't currently have at that stage. I know looking back at myself as an 18 or 21 year old is just embarrassing, right? And so I hope that that means that I've made a little bit of progress since then. And so, but this phenomenon I see happen all over the place where someone who is a founder of a space or an intellectual of some sort or a charismatic individual will have some models that they like to use to, you know, parse reality. And um, people will then, seize on these and, and, you know, fixate on them, reify them and and start using them as sort of the only tool. And it's like, you know, you get the dynamic where when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and well, no, no, not everything is a nail and not everything is related to best in terms of stage models of adult development. You know, I mean, uh, one interesting wrinkle to this, I've had some interesting conversations with a friend and colleague recently, um, where he's offered the perspective that, um, say the Keegan stages are actually not descriptively wrong, but missing a key element, which is that the fact that we have to go through them, according to him, is caused by the inherently traumatizing nature of our society, basically. That, you know, this whole thing where you go through two to three to four to five, that, you know, this wouldn't have been a thing in a healthy indigenous community, according to him. Um, because, uh, because you just don't see that, you know, in, in such communities, but th- this is a sort of reclamation of our, of our real selves, um, out of a, a, a deep pit of complex PTSD caused by the, you know, patriarchal industrial complex that is our society. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another wrinkle on the Keegan stages that I, I haven't gotten to presenting yet on the SOA or other public fora, but that I think is, is quite, quite interesting. And, and, a useful contribution. And I sort of wonder how much that applies to other stage models like the uh, spiral dynamics, you know, et, et cetera. Um, my suspicion is that something like that does apply, that our whole frame of what adult development looks like is heavily conditioned by the fact that we're deeply out of touch with nature. We're deeply out of touch with our own authentic expressions of family and sexuality. We're deeply out of touch with, you know, our our sense of being in balance with the cosmos, whether you want to call that the God or the Tao or whatever, but there's something deeply wrong there uh, at a societal level and at the level of most individuals as well. So, you know, I think that this, this thing is particularly ironic when looked at through the lens of Keegan stages, where the uh, tendency to um, select uh, an overriding ontology or overarching meta narrative and just, just slice reality up according to that um, religiously is associated with stage four, which is, you know, not the, the last stage. It's not the complete stance. It's not the fluid mode. And so it's kind of funny that a lot of people that are so into, you know, stage models of development that says that, you know, at a certain stage, you stop doing that. Well, they really love to look at everything through stage development models. And we can, you know, think for a second about what this might imply. Uh, yeah, to take shots at another uh, community within the metasphere, Game B would um, say, they would say basically exactly that thesis right there, that it all basically started with the agricultural revolution and moving into the cities, developing institutions. And before that, it was all hunky-dory. Um, you know, so they're saying we need to get past this hierarchical, patriarchal system uh, that keeps everybody repressed and in these, these stages that are involve all this suffering and cleaning, and it's not goodness. Um, but yet, they're still totally based on a hierarchical idea of moving from this stage to some other stage. Uh, I, I've 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 tr- I've tried to reclaim game B in my in my thinking or, or to frame it charitably as they're they're searching around for some kind of um, you would call it a bridge maybe some sort of provisional structure or ontology to get us to the game B uh, sphere um, 
but I don't, I don't think they've found it. What do, what do you think about game B? Well, to be perfectly honest, I think that the framing they started with is pretty hobbled, and I'm not sure that that as an attractor for a change-making community is going to be successful in the ways that they hope it will. And so what I mean by this is, you know, there's the framing of game B. This is importing quite consciously a bunch of, um, you know, game theoretic implications. It's implying that you're using a sort of, you know, von Neumann, Morgenstern type of game theoretic um, lens to look at society and interactions and economics and all this kind of stuff, right? Whether it's zero sum or positive sum, doesn't really matter. You're, you're looking at things through a lens of game theory. And um, game theory is a powerful tool in situations of genuine conflict, you know, like uh, we, we owe a great debt for a lack of nuclear war to people like Thomas Schelling. But that being said, it's just one sort of ontology for looking at the world. And there's going to be problem spaces to which it's uniquely unsuited. You know, um, conversation that I had with uh, Benita Roy and Forrest Landry on the STOA, I think um, in, oh, January or February or so as part of a series that Jordan Hall was putting on, um, you know, Forrest and I talked about the need to move from a sense of uh, game theoretic dynamics to a sense of field theoretic dynamics as, as one sort of metaphorical shift that might happen in this space. And I think this also points to, well, game theory, winners, losers. It's the math is all discrete, right? As opposed to smooth and continuous. It seems to be like yet another sort of um, instantiation of, of the sort of masculine yin, um, you know, very like uh, hard type energy, um, very like discrete step functiony type energy that, um, that, that you see in our society and, and in the meta spaces as well. So, you know, game B, I, I think almost everybody in that scene is, is coming from a sense of, of, of good motivations that the people that I know from that scene seem to really care about the world. They want the world to be a better place. And they have some pretty accurate diagnoses of what's wrong with the current system. Um, I would say that I think the whole framing of game A to transitioning to game B imposes certain limitations on the possibility spaces that it's going to let you see. And that the, the possibility spaces that I see that I think are the most promising for our society and for the globe don't really look like they're going to be easy to see if you're coming at it from a game theoretic perspective, uh, first and foremost. So, you know, I, I think that some of the leadership in game B, uh, people like Jordan, et cetera, have, have recognized a lot of these issues themselves um, independently. And so I'm probably not saying anything that they don't already know um, by saying that, but you know, that, that's, that's just kind of my, my take on, on the sort of game B phenomenon. And, you know, just as um, you know, uh, the sense-making web at large, the game B scene, again, is really kind of a, a, a disproportionately um, male scene. And um, when we talk about things like communitas, we talk about things like intersubjectivity and we space and so on, you know, um, I'm not quite a biological essentialist at all, but I do think that there's something about a feminine perspective that's really wanted in terms of bringing wisdom to those conversations that the, that the whole game B and, and just the meta spaces at large could really benefit from a, a, a greater proportion of, of sort of, uh, you know, feminine oriented perspectives in, the, in this particular way. Keeping with the theme of game B here, one of my critiques of game B, and I think as a kind of pervasive motif in a lot of these meta communities is what I view, or at least I'm kind of vigilant of, a kind of a reflective libertarianism, an allergy to anything top down, right? And this kind of, there's a kind of anti-government attitude. And it was interesting when I was interviewing Jim Rutt on um, Albert Kim's uh, Noetic Nomad channel, Jim Rutt is pretty, has some pretty big like 
you know, he envisions a real big role for government and some heavy handed top down action to transition us to a game B paradigm. Um, and I've, I just conversations I've had with people on the game B Facebook page. It's like, yeah, the kind of libertarianism, even anarchism is so strong. And again, to me, kind of like what you're saying about the game theoretic lens and its promises and its limitations can still become its own form of reductionism. It's kind of ideological monocropping uh, where any kind of government intervention is, is not good. And, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, government equal game A. And I was just like, oh my God, like, this is so frustrating. And, and I, I know people, certain people have really taken issue from a left critique. For myself, the divide is, is even more fundamental. It's kind of like about the role of government and what government should do and what should not. And I, I believe that government does play a role in both the libertarian sense of not fucking things up and over constraining complex systems, but also doing affirmative, you know, kind of progressive moves to uh, regulate and set the constraints for complex systems so that positive forms of emergent self-organizing self uh, you know, things can crop up. Um, and I'm reminded, I don't know if you know who Herbert Crowley is. He wrote a book called Promise of the American Life and he has a phrase called Hamiltonian means to Jeffersonian ends. And I've kind of thought of that as like metamodern means to game B ends, but the government in you know, whatever capacity plays some role there too. Uh, and I'm just curious what you think of like, I don't know if you saw Dave Snowden talk to David Fuller on Rebel Wisdom, uh, but one of the things that Fuller said that I'm very happy that Snowden instantly corrected the record on was that David Fuller was like, yeah, what we've seen with COVID is that a lot of, a lot of governments, um, whenever you know, there's this kind of uh, authoritarian top-down moves, it, it always, things always go wrong, right? And Dave's, what Dave was like, yes and no. Like, you, know, you, you, need, you need the role of the government to set constraints and to be able to uh, have some draconian measures to stabilize the system during periods of chaos, right? Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on all of this. Well, how much time you got? Um, so uh, however much time see. you have. Um, careful what you wish for. So basically, um, government. The hell does government mean? I I'm actually kind of serious about that question because you know uh, one thing I like that the is common in the sort of less wrong style rationalist community is the thing they call rationalist taboo. We got a word. It means a lot of different things. Let's taboo that word and disambiguate the referent by actually describing what the hell we mean by government. And it turns out that. Government means quite a few different things, right? I mean, one standard definition of government is that entity which has a legal monopoly on the use of force, right? Okay, cool. That's the sort of frame that we've inherited as for what a government is in terms of it's descended from the concept of sovereignty, uh, you know, like a sovereign, right? So, um, and, you know, the UK um, in, in France, when they had absolute monarchs, well, that that dude was the one with a legal monopoly on the use of force, right? And all other uses of force were granted by his or her, um, you know, uh, sufferance, but not if the if the the sovereign said your use of force was wrong, well, it was wrong, right? Um, so it, it's descended from this sort of absolute monarchy, divine right of kings type thing, this concept of sovereignty, um, not as used necessarily in the game B context, but just the literal dictionary definition of sovereignty, right? So we're already in a bit of a mess here, say in the United States or other federal systems, because we've got multiple sovereigns, right? Each individual state is defined as a sovereign. Uh, tribes, uh, federally recognized tribes are defined as sovereigns. Um, the federal government itself is designed, defined as a sovereign. Now, usually there are not sovereigns other than those three, but for example, in areas of the country where you have a lot of Indian reservations, well, you have um, 
three separate sovereigns, each with their own com conflicting sovereign interests. And so it gets a little tricky to define, well, who's the real sovereign? And of course, the ultimate answer is the supremacy clause of the Constitution. It's the feds. But this gets dicey fast. And so it doesn't really seem to capture what we're looking for when we want to talk about government and what it actually is, right? Especially in the game B context, when you got a bunch of like, sort of anarchist libertarian types um, who are kind of talking about this stuff. But then you got Jim Rutt, as uh, he likes to call himself, a uh, game B OG talking about the strong role for government and his vision of what a you know post game B transition would look like. So I think we wanted to kind of step back and look at things from first principles. Imagine that you have anarchist paradise, libertarian utopia, right? Well, one thing that the libertarians agree is incredibly important is freedom to contract, right? I can enter into binding agreements with you. And even minarchists basically believe that there's some rule, uh, role for a court system in order to you know, enforce these legally binding agreements between sovereign individuals. Cool, right? Let's say we're in a sort of left anarchist, you know, anarcho-syndicalist types thing. Well, wait, what is the structure of the, the syndicate? of the, the, the voluntary association groups within an anarchist frame. Well, you know, you ask me, you iterate this over time and you get something emerging that looks a hell of a lot like a government, regardless of how it historically was constituted and, and conceived of. And I mean, you could say that that's basically what happened here in the colonies as we had a pretty libertarian kind of uh, vibe going in the 1700s where the sovereign was distant across an ocean that took months to cross. And well, you know, like, people got together and formed voluntary agreements um, about how they would conduct themselves and threw off the yoke of the foreign sovereign and like what we've got now basically evolved from a sort of libertarian frame. So I'm less concerned about like whether we technically call a thing a government and, and more concerned about what is the role of collectives of human beings imposing their will, imposing choices determined by their collective sense making on others who have not necessarily signed up for or consented to this arrangement. Now, obviously, some of this is unavoidable, because as humans, we have these things called children, and they don't get to consent to which family they're born into, unless you want to take a sort of reincarnation based frame, which is out of scope of this discussion. Um, so, okay, so there's going to be some people, we call them kids that don't really get to meaningfully consent to be governed by whatever social structure is in place. But we've also got people that aren't children. You know, what if 75% of us think that littering should be illegal? Sure, or it, forget legal. We don't even have a legal system. 75% of us want to kick your ass if you litter. Well, sounds to me like you're going to get your ass kicked if you litter, you know? So, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is it seems like we're going to get sort of government-esque structures emerging from any environment where human beings have language and are allowed to come to agreements with each other and where they have hands and arms and legs and can enforce their agreements by some amount of physical violence. This seems to have always been the case, and it seems like it will always continue to be the case. Even in these sort of very primitive pre-agricultural societies, you had things like a tribal council, <clears throat> which was able to impose binding decisions and do binding dispute arbitration on members, regardless of whether they consented to it. And the only way to get out of this was to walk away, which usually meant death for a primitive human, because we are a social species, which does not do well in the wilderness on our own. So, you know, I'm kind of like, well, when you look at it that way, of course, we're going to have government, like we might not call it that, but how the hell are you not going to have a bunch of people getting together and agreeing about what feels right and what feels wrong and deciding, well, you know, we've 
got a bunch of guns or we got a bunch of strong dudes or whatever. And we're going to, you know, remake the world to make it a little bit more right and a little bit less wrong. And I, I don't see how we escape those sorts of dynamics while we still have anything approaching. I mean, forget a post-industrial technological society. I mean, if we have anything at the level of a Greek city state, we're going to have something like that emerge. What is your personal vision for what the role of government should be normatively, generally speaking? I think that the role of the government, normatively speaking, should be to ensure the um, preservation and conservation of the fundamental substrates for life and civilization. So what I mean by this is that, as we're seeing now, there's this thing that we call the biosphere. And it's actually not quite clear whether humanity has the level of technological power to fundamentally alter the biosphere and shift it into a different attractor state such that it enters into a new equilibrium that cannot support life like us. A lot of plausible scientific models suggest that, in fact, we do have this power. <clears throat> you know, we have this power through things like nuclear detonations. We have this power through things like burning 500 million years worth of fossilized plants within the space of, you know, 150 years, which is what we call the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so, you know, uh, it would be really shitty if we just failed a test at a coordination problem and fundamentally altered the substrate of the biosphere such that creatures like us could no longer exist. That would really suck for everybody. It would suck to the extent that we wouldn't get to exist. Um, so that seems pretty bad. So I think that, you know, something on the order of solving problems that are multipolar traps, things like a uh, tragedy of the commons type problems, um, probably something like a government, something that if you squint at it looks like a government, I think is probably necessary for this. And this seems to be part of the role of a government. And, and right along with this, another type of multipolar trap is the sort of dynamics of vendetta that you get in um, areas that don't have government, right? Where, you know, honor killings spiral into more honor killings, spiral into more honor killings. And, you know, you can look at the uh, saga of the Volsungs from Iceland and, and see how this plays out. You can look at a lot of the stories from Central Europe from, say, like the, you know, 1100s to 1500s or something like that, see how this plays out. You can get entire regions decimated by, from my perspective, kind of unnecessary violence, all because of the absence of something like a court system, right? And so provision of something like a court system for the resolution of civil disputes, because if you don't resolve those, they're going to spiral into criminal acts of violence. And then, of course, resolving when some transgression has happened, that's like an act of violence or an act of theft, um, you know, resolving that according to a, a process that at least approximates being fair and impartial to both parties or all parties involved. Those both, to me, seem like necessary functions of, of, of any sort of like um, large group of people that's gathered together and want, wants to live well. So, so is there not a role then for anything like uh, the development of a people um, that, that is done by some centralized uh, unit, which maybe let's not call it a government. In 100 years, we might not be calling them governments or 200, 300 years. Um, but what is the role for that? What is the, the, yeah, the developmental role for government, if, if any? So for me, this varies significantly based on scale and diversity. Um, something I've talked with, with Ryan before about is, is I, I very much enjoy and take up many of the ideas that Nassim Taleb puts forward in a Scala Politica, um, where he talks about something like fractal localism, talks about the difference between centralized, decentralized, and distributed, right? So in this sense, you know, um, he, he quotes someone in there, I'm going to forget the exact quote, but basically like 
a family is properly communist, a neighborhood is properly socialist, and then all the way up to like a federal government should be properly libertarian or something like that. And so that makes a deep amount of sense to me, especially as someone situated in the United States, which is this sort of cultural melting pot or salad bowl or whatever the correct metaphor is to use these days, where you have so many different ideologies, tribes, ethnicities, religions, all coexisting within the same physical space, right? Um, so by way of answering your question, I would say that when I look at it, I think if you're somewhere like, I don't know, like say Tibet or Bhutan, well, everybody there shares a religion and almost everybody there shares an ethnic group. So the, the sort of approaches and to the sacred, to the development of a human being and what that looks like, that's not going to be terribly controversial in such a society, right? So in that case, maybe there's a pretty strong role for a central government shepherding people through this process of development. And in fact, this is what you get. The Dalai Lama back before the uh, you know, People's Republic invaded um, was both the spiritual and the governmental head of Tibet. So that's kind of what they did. Um, similarly, uh, you know, back in um, what we now re might refer to as the medieval times, um, they didn't really use the word Europe. They called the place Christendom, and the Pope was basically in charge, right? And again, this was more or less able to work-ish because everybody was Catholic in Christendom. And so everybody had very similar ideas about what the sacred looks like, what human development looks like. It looks like imitating or emulating Jesus. And well, you know, we, we have a book about that. So it seems to work out all right. But then you go to a place like America now or Europe now, which is deeply multicultural. There's a plurality of different religions, ethnicities, races, um, relations to gender and sexuality, ethnic identity, you know, the whole ball of wax, right? And so in an environment like that, I'm much more deeply suspicious of the idea that a centralized government with a monopoly on force should be in charge of um, human development. And, and I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that this should be distributed among a mix of religious and secular institutions. You're a Christian. You want to know how to develop as a human being? Go ask your pastor or priest. You're, you're a, a Buddhist? Well, go talk to your Lama or Rinpoche or Roshi. You know, you're, you're a, a Muslim? Go talk to your Imam or your Mullah. You know, like, like well, that, that seems to be the proper order of things. And, and if you're, you're an atheist or an agnostic, well, we have a whole smorgasbord of spiritual but not religious and explicitly irreligious, you know, paths to personal development represented in our culture now. And so I, I'd be very deeply suspicious of any attempts to sort of codify what human development looks like by any agency that looks even slightly like our current federal government and an environment even close to as diverse as, as say the United States, because this is just going to turn into a political football, a political hot potato. And well, we see how well that's working out for us about issues that you know, according to me, are actually less important than this sort of spiritual and um, personal development of, of the individuals in society. I don't have a follow-up to that exactly because I mostly agree with you, actually. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think the devil's ar uh, argument, devil's advocate argument there would be that the more diverse society is, the more people are going to go off into their own bubbles and we're going to we're going to have all these silos and then people inevitably start fighting with each other if there's not some kind of national character at least you know but how does a character manifest if not actively in some form of policy making surrounding morality i mean i honestly think in a country like ours this basically gets represented by something like the constitution and the bill of rights and maybe in 
Europe, it looks like the, you know, signing on to the UN Declaration of uh, Universal Human Rights or whatever they call that, right? I mean, really, that's the thing that that everybody who's in this country basically can kind of agree with, you know, the immigrants um, with different backgrounds than what we think of as your, you know, apple pie American came here because of the promises made by those documents. And the people who are been here for longer, well, their ancestors um, wrote and signed those documents, um, or were friends with the people that did and in community with the people who did. So that to me looks like the sort of thing that that can be the glue that binds together a people, you know, and, and I, I really trace the decline of 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 our sort of sense of, of 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 coming together as a people with any sort of shared identity and and shared sense of the sacred to you know the decline of civics classes in high school honestly right because you know the difference between um you know when my parents were in school and when i was man i took american government as an elective right we didn't have to take that and that was not the case in the 50s when my parents were in school so um you know uh it, it's really uh it's really the sort of thing where we, we got a really good thing there, I think, as Americans. And, you know, Europe's got its own version of this that I think is generally a good thing. And, you know, I mean, um, you have uh, you have this sort of, of, of thing that's, that's compatible, as far as I can tell, with basically all of the religious traditions, you know, um, at least it's the sort of compromise that maybe makes everybody equally unhappy. So no one religion or, you know, worldview is going to have a monopoly on agreement with the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. So that seems like the sort of thing that makes a decent foundation. Um, so other than that, I mean, I do think that that we somewhat either never had or need to rediscover the sort of social tech to allow a truly pluralistic society to flourish, you know, because you have previous pluralistic societies like the, uh, the Middle East under under certain uh, Muslim dynasties, like the ancient Persian Empire, where uh, even like the Roman Empire, where local beliefs and practices and cultural folkways were respected, but it was very clear which group was in charge, and this was not open to negotiation. That doesn't seem like what's indicated. That doesn't seem like what we really want for America or Europe in the 21st century. So I, I'm not sure that the social tech currently exists to have an cosmopolitan and pluralistic society without a clear dominant group calling the shots. And, and I personally hope that this will exist. And this is a big part of my current project space is creating, well, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. So creating computational models of social interaction at the information theoretic level to see if I can, you know, generate some, some ideas for, for how we might actually organize things in a sort of cosmopolitan pluralistic way without having some group on top. Well, that sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear a little about yeah. that. If you could just get on your soapbox there, that would be great. Yeah. Well, what did you? What have you been discovering? Or what do you hope to discover? Well, so one thing I notice about the forms of organization that we use now, including but not limited to those that we refer to as hierarchical, right, is that they tend to operate by promulgating and maintaining information asymmetries. So what I mean by this is, let's imagine you have some number of nodes right? Each node in this case represents a human being. They're an agent and a sense maker and a choice maker in their own right, okay? And then we can define a graph or hypergraph between these nodes um, such that there are connections between them which have some amount of bandwidth of the connection and they also have, you know, connections to some other nodes 
but not all other nodes. You know, you're friends with some people, but not others. You have some acquaintances, maybe the bandwidth's a little lower there, but you still talk to them. And then there's like most people you don't talk to, right? Um, so when we think of what an organization really is, well, it's an attempt to create a sort of meta agent out of a network of human agents, right? We talk about organizations wanting things, having goals, having priorities. Well, these are the attributes of an agent, right? So we talk about, um, I talk about uh, organization as meta agent. And so then I wonder, well, what are the information theoretic dynamics um, in terms of this graph structure and the information flows, which then lead to the emergence of meta agents with different characteristics, right? And so when you look at the way that we organize ourselves, it's pretty obvious in the case of a top-down organization, like the most canonical top-down organizational structure I'm familiar with is that of a military organization, right? And military is all about a top-down chain of command and control. Information flows up, but it doesn't flow down unless you have a strict need to know, right? And it's all compartmentalized and siloed, and you can literally be shot for telling the wrong person the wrong thing, right? So um, this, this is clearly uh, something where if you were to create such a graph of the information flow dynamics between the individual agents, you would see a lot of connections where information is not promulgated and is explicitly blocked, right? Now, you might ask yourself, well, what about something kind of the opposite of that? Like, uh, say, like an anarchist collective or something like that, right? Well, it might seem like there's less information blocking, but this doesn't actually seem to be the way that things work when you take a look at it. I mean, there's a wonderful essay that was turned into a short book called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. Um, I'm forgetting the author's name right now. I'm blanking on it, but if you Google it, you will find this uh, essay available online. And um, this is the author's experience working in a bunch of political activist collectives in the sort of what was then called the women's lib movement, right? And these were all explicitly non-hierarchical. So she wrote this essay called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, reflecting on these experiences because, well, why is it a tyranny? Because humans innately, naturally form structures, something like a hierarchy. And so when you maintain the official narrative that there's no structure and no hierarchy, what this does is it pushes it underground. It pushes it into what you might call the collective Jungian shadow. And so then it makes it illegible. At least if I'm in a, an org where I've got a boss and my boss has a boss and I've got a subordinate, I know where I stand. I know how the power dynamics work. But in an anarchist collective where we're theoretically all equal, it's often really hard to get my bearings and figure out where the actual levers of power are. Um, and But they are there. And if you step on the wrong one, you get flattened. So, um, and from my own experience of political organizing, mainly on the left, um, you know, things like Occupy and its descendant movements, um, it's absolutely not the case. These theoretically non-hierarchical organizations are non-hierarchical. They always emerge hierarchies. And when you keep them in the shadows, you get shadowy shit coming out of them. And part of it is, well, people maintain their positions of privilege within these, these organizations by being the only one who knows certain information or who has certain skills. They block information. They maintain and create information asymmetries in order to promulgate their own political power within the organization. So um, my basic question now is, what do models of organizations look like that don't create and in fact repair information asymmetries. And the reason that I'm looking at that is because in the metasphere, we talk a lot about the idea of collective intelligence, right? I think there's a very good reason for this. I think that humanity is faced by a set of what are called wicked problems. And, you know, people think I'm a pretty smart guy. I can tell you right now, 
I do not have enough brain power to solve even a single one of those problems, even if I worked on it for the rest of my life, not single handedly, right? Uh, to use a sort of, uh, you know, computer problems are compute bound. And they are um, bound by compute in such a way that um, basically I, I cannot um, solve them, you know, at the level of, um, uh, of a single brain. There's just not enough compute available in any single brain at all to, to solve these wicked problems. So this means that we need a distributed network of compute, meaning a network of agents. So we need to create organizations that allow us to use the full sense-making capacities of each individual member of the organization, or else we're not going to solve these wicked problems and history is going to pass us by. So that's basically my take. And so I'm trying to create some models of what organizational dynamics might emerge um, from various different um, graph structures of humans um, and various levels of bandwidth and communication arrangements between them and, and see where, um, you know, when you introduce a slight bit of adversariality into the sort of like utility functions of the individual agents, well, how long and does it take for information blocking dynamics to emerge and how do they emerge? So this is my current active area of research. That's very interesting. Um, so what are some examples of like what that could look like? You mean in practice, like what, what, yeah. like the good thing or the bad thing basically, right? Either, either one. Yeah. Okay. So the bad thing is, have you ever been a part of a, a group, maybe an activist group or, you know, even just a social group of friends, or maybe it's a company that you have a job at. There's certain things that everybody knows is true and you know, you're going to get fired or ostracized for saying out loud, right? This is information blocking dynamics in the wild. You know, like you're at work and, you know, something's going on and you, you just know there's something off about it. But you know that if you open your mouth, you're going to get scapegoated or fired or ostracized for, for speaking this thing that, you know, so it, it blocks the creation of what you call common knowledge as opposed to just shared knowledge. Right. And, and you need common knowledge because that's the sort of global workspace that collective sense making can operate on is what we call common knowledge. And so we can't really do collective sense making well if we have dynamics blocking the creation of common knowledge in selective ways. So, you know, the things that we put into our collective shadow in this sense that we, we all know, but we block from becoming legible text common knowledge. Well, these are going to contain the seeds of our downfall, I think. And so, you know, we all are familiar with this, you know, like, like there's things that you just don't talk about in certain contexts. Well, I'm deeply suspicious of those sorts of social norms that there's just things you don't talk about, you know, and I, I, you can take that too far. I don't need to know what you do in the bedroom. I de don't need to know about the accidents that your kids had when they were potty training, but, you know, beyond some basics like that, I really don't think there are good reasons to do this info blocking thing. Um, you know, when we're trying to actually get shit done as adult human beings. Um, and, and certainly we need to get some shit done if we're going to leave the world in a better place than we found it. Yeah, I, I deal with this at work all the time <laughs> because I, it's like, you don't want to say what's the elephant in the room. Uh, and there's, there's a weird dimension too. There, I think there's kind of a game theoretic trap and an individual collective dynamic that makes this weird, right? So one of the traps is that if a single person says that one thing, they have a kind of first mover competitive disadvantage, right? Everyone else is going to be like, oh, you said that thing. Even if I agree with you, I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, courageous enough to say the same thing publicly. But if, if we all knew that we we're all going to say that at the same time in a kind of a, a you know kind of kickstart that or kind of use a simple like mechanism to coordinate our opinion sharing, then maybe we can all share it at the same time. Now, one of the dynamics I found that's really strange too is that some certain people, even if they we I talk to let's say ten people on my team and we all agree 
that this certain elephant in the room thing is problematic and should probably be named. They'll bring it up with me one-on-one, -on -one, but no one will ever share it in a group, even if everyone else knows secretly that everyone else believes the same thing. I think there's an also for certain topics, there's a weird dynamic where if everyone says a certain thing at once or agrees on it as a group, it starts feeling really uncomfortable, right? So you, there are certain things that have to be reserved for one-on-one -on -one conversations. And yes, I am talking about specific types of race or identity uh, issues in Portland social justice circles. Yeah, I mean, so have to is doing a lot of work in that sentence. And I would say the fact that it feels that those have to be one-on-one -on -one conversations, I would say as a historically contingent fact rather than a a priori necessary fact. Um, and so I'm interested personally in shifting the dynamics of society to the small extent that I possibly can myself and in collaboration with others, such that the set of things that we feel like we must discuss only in private one-on-one -on -one gradually become smaller. Because, you know, if we could just matrix-like download all of the experiences that everybody of every race that we know has had in the world, I think we would have a lot less conflict about race-related issues, you know? Um, there's so much stuff that goes on because we just can't directly transmit these experiences to each other and words are a clumsy tool. And so, you know, um, I really think that this is deeply related to the dyna dynamics of trauma. Like if you go and look at books like The Body Keeps a Score and other books that discuss PTSD and complex PTSD, and you look at the symptomology of this, the ways that people relate to the portions of their autobiographical narrative that have to do with these sorts of experiences are pretty clearly PTSD symptoms, even for people that didn't have a particular traumatic event happen in their life, right? Um, I personally am working under the hypothesis that being born into Western civilization causes complex PTSD. Um, and it's so pervasive that we just misdiagnose or we mislabel. We think that you have to have some unusual level of trauma in your life in order to suffer from these symptoms. But you look at the symptoms and like, there's, there's stuff that has to do with reduced working memory that has to do with uh, an ability to express cleanly and clearly about autobiographical narrative. There's stuff that has to do with, um, you know, uh, siding preferentially with the transgressor in a conflict. There's research about this, right? And so think about how this applies to things like identitarian issues. And it becomes pretty obvious that you know, um, this is this is a common refrain from the sort of like critical race theory side of things that I do think is accurate in this case is that it's not just the ones who are seemingly oppressed who are traumatized in our society. Being in the social and ethnic groups which have been the oppressors, this requires us to lie to ourselves and gaslight ourselves as, you know, white men or whatever about the shape of our society and our role in it, you know, um, and, and I think that we're all kind of traumatized from this, regardless of where we end up on the sort of axes of oppression, and that that this trauma contributes deeply to our, you know, our our tendency to feel like we need to block information transfer about certain things like this whole, oh, I got to have this conversation in private, got to be careful where this information goes. You know, this is like classic PTSD symptomology when you really take a look at it. There's, there's another dimension to this. I'm really curious about what your, what your thoughts are on, or if you've worked on this and kind of your, your thinking about these things, which is the shelling segregation model problem of cultural balkanization and the role that that plays in polarization. Given that that seems to be a kind of inevitable, intrinsic human organizing tendency, uh, and even in Portland, there are certain, there are renowned aspect, areas of Portland that are like the Trump neighborhoods, right? In a sea of everyone else having LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter flags. I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? How does this work? But, and like, given that tendency that's exacerbated through social media and the amount of, you know, the kind of divisive political rhetoric of the moment, 
Uh, what do we do about that as a society? Well, I assume you're talking about the sort of models that use something like cellular automata or things like that. And, you know, each individual agent has an extremely tiny preference to be around agents that are sort of like it along some axis. And then over time, you get these sort of segregated clusters, right? That, that's sort of the model you're talking about. Cool. So like, doesn't actually seem like a problem to me. Um, you know, like, um, you look at, say, the history of something like New York City, right? And this is the story of New York, right? You've got Little Italy, you've got Chinatown, you've got, you know, all of these areas, you've got Harlem, right? And, you know, like they, they shift, um, you know, they, they change. And over time, people will notice that there are advantages to being integrated into a larger sense of identity than just their smaller, more parochial sense of identity. And so, you know, the Dutch became Americans and then Harlem became a place where African-Americans lived. And, you know, Little Italy and the Bronx, where I used to live, um, started out as well Little Italy. And now it's 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 got a, a huge segment of, of uh, say, like Puerto Rican and Dominican immigrants, right? Um, others from Latin America. And, you know, I'm sure that in 40 years, it'll be a completely different group that that mainly lives there. Um, and, and, and so I guess there is a thing that runs through a lot of discourse that views segregation um, as, as per se bad. I think I disagree with this. Um, I think segregation imposed from the top by the government, which is, of course is an implicit threat of force because when you disobey the government, ultimately, if you keep doing it, guys with guns show up to your house and this is, this is not good. Um, so, uh, you know, redlining, terrible fucking shit, terrible shit, enforced segregation from the top down. But the fact that people want to live around other people that share a language and a culture and maybe a religious or ethnic identity with them, I'm not convinced this is a problem, you know, especially when you live in a country that does have the Bill of Rights, that does have an overarching commitment to religious and, and cultural pluralism written into literally its constitution, the DNA of the country. And so, um, and, and, you know, the EU has similar commitments to pluralism. Um, most places that are within the broader Western cultural sphere have such commitments. And you get a lot of really beautiful things coming out of these voluntarily segregated areas. You know, like you want really good cuisine. You don't go to the most culturally mixed part of a city. You go to the part where the people live who live and breathe that cuisine. And they tend to live together. And they be, they're able to support restaurants that serve this cuisine at a very high level. Um, because there's enough people within, you know, walking or train distance to, to support the restaurant, right? So I really think that, you know, diversity is wonderful, but, but segregation that emerges naturally because of people's individual preferences, like, I'm having a hard time seeing how this is actually a bad thing, um, basically is my answer there. I, I can uh, offer my two cents, right? Because I think the problem is in, in this climate, it's the degree to which, and this is a, according to the data that I've seen, this is kind of a uniquely modern uh, phenomenon, right? A, a very recent phenomenon where people's political views are getting more and more tied to their cultural identity. And there's a lack of cross-cutting cultural identity. So it's the political polarization that comes about as a result of the natural cultural self-organizing self arrangements uh, creates a problem at the level of democracy, um, whereas before when that wasn't the case, right? So I, there may be a Muslim community, there may be Chinatown, there may be a Jewish community, but if the political views within those communities were more diverse, it wouldn't be as big of a problem. But now that if you shop at Whole Foods, I can already guess 
uh, nine out of your 10 political opinions. And if you go to a gun rally or you go to a country music concert or something, I can guess nine out of your 10 political opinions. Uh, that's just weird, right? That's, that has kind of emergent problematic dynamics in terms of driving and uh, solidifying polarizing dynamics. Well, first of all, I shop at Whole Foods and I love and own guns. So um, I'll throw a little wrench into your uh, schema there. But um, so you're bringing in a second part of the picture here, which is deeply problematic, according to me. And this seems to be an extended reckoning with the power of broadcast media, essentially, is what I would describe as the generator function of, of this particular kind of polarization, um, you know that combined with the earlier um, situation of the particular voting system that we adopted here, you know, a non-parliamentary, um, you know, proportional, non-proportional system where, you know, it's winner takes all first past the post type voting. So this sort of, if you iterate the simulation long enough is going to result in the emergence of two parties. This, this is how this works, right? It works this way everywhere with a similar system. And, um, so this means that you're going to end up with two big tent parties. And I think it's probably not that controversial to say that neither the Democratic platform nor the Republican platform has maybe ever, but certainly not this century, been what I would call ideologically coherent, right? I mean, so we've got a party that cares about the environment, that's pro-abortion, that's sort used to sort of be pro free speech but now that's shifting that's like kind of anti established religion and we got a party that's sort of like pro military pro family values anti i mean how do these things really hang together from a consistent ideological framework i mean they don't like let's say if i was a catholic well i'd find myself being pushed and, and my family um, on my mom's side is catholic so I, I speak to them about this you know and well you know social justice is a term that came from catholicism right, originally. Um, so you've got this deep concern for the poor and the less well-off and, you know, the, following Jesus' example there. You've also got this deep concern with what we call a pro-life mentality now, right? And well, this, you're already split. Two of your most important religious commandments are putting you in different political camps. So you got to pick a side and that already sucks, right? Um, and then add to this the sort of feedback dynamics of polarization caused by mass media, especially mass media that is an evolutionary super stimulus, you know, TV and now internet um, interactive media. Well, this is a recipe for polarization and disaster, but I don't think this has much to do with people living in little enclaves with people like them, because polarization was actually a lot less bad in the country back when the country was more segregated along these axes, um, right? So... So I, I think the model just doesn't hold up there, that, that this, this sort of like local um, segregation caused by people having preferences to be around similar people, it, it just doesn't seem like it's a strong causal factor in the current level of political polarization writ large. I think it's much more a, a technological question, both with respect to our sort of voting and political technology, as well as, you know, our sort of mass media technologies and the sort of interaction and intersection between those. Now, that being said, I do think the political polarization problem is a huge one that's, you know, kind of killing everything and this sucks. So we definitely need to address that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, frankly, that optimistic about um, this happening through structural means, meaning, you know, if I were king of the world, I would I would change voting systems in this country. I would use, you know, something like ranked choice voting. I would use different, um, and I'm not particularly married to that particular voting algorithm, but something that's not first past the post, something that doesn't lead to a winner takes all, um, you know, a, a system where basically the sort of dynamics lead to a two-party system with strong polarization. That, that would not be my choice. But given that, that sort of is our choice, 
my hope in this area lies in terms of uh, what some people are talking about, a great realignment of the political parties. You know, um, the Republican Party seems to be currently split between the sort of like um, Republican Party as it was constituted since Eisenhower and then the new Trump wing of the Republican Party. There seems to be strong disagreement between these factions about what the Republican Party stands for and what it really represents. And then similarly, there's a uh, strong split happening in the De Democratic Party where you have the old sort of like coalition of, you know, labor unions, um, working class people with uh, the sort of people that would uh, work for or donate to the ACLU. So like freedom of religion, freedom of speech and workers' rights. Well, man, a lot of that stuff is starting to come into conflict with the more identitarian social justice wing of the current left, right? Where um, the, the First Amendment is being questioned. This, this would not have been compatible with democratic ideology you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and also, um, you know, you have a lot of the uh, downstream consequences of that are really um, in conflict with the actual family and personal values of the average working class American, the working poor. I mean, regardless of race, but this also does correlate with race, you know, um, this, this, the very same racial minorities that, that the uh, social justice wing of the Democratic Party is so concerned with protecting the welfare of have personal and religious ideologies that are deeply incompatible on average with the sort of critical theory, critical race theory based social justice ideology. And I mean, you see this in survey after survey, right? You know, look at, look at the look at what the average black American or the average Hispanic American believes about things like family values, about things like gender identity, um, et cetera, and, and see how well that plays with the sort of um, mainstream, uh, uh, you know, left-wing social justice ideology. And, and they're not very compatible. So um, I see each party as having a major split down to its core of its coalition. And I have some amount of hope that we will have a hopefully nonviolent hopefully relatively brief period of um, party coalitional realignment to the point where, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, like we were friends with people of all parties. Like my parents were Democrats, but like sometimes voted Republican and we were friends with Republicans who sometimes voted Democrat. It was very much seen by the mainstream that you could be in either party and both parties represented real good American values that were compatible with being life aligned and being, you know, like a good person. Now, most people look at the other side of the political fence and they say, fucking terrible people. I can't imagine how you're so broken. That, that's new, man. That was not the case when I was growing up. And I, I hope that with this, maybe if this happens, this sort of coalitional realignment where new coalitions form and they might still be called Democrats and Republicans, but that, that we can look at the other side of the aisle and see people as human beings again. One comment really quickly on that. I think that's a, that's a good uh, illustration of two things that I think a lot about, right? One is that your family had friends who had diverging political views and that was fine, right? Your friends and you, so you actually encounter people with different political views and you can talk about it, maybe not, you know, uh, but but either way, you're still having those relationships. And, and just one more thing with, you know, the, the kind of segregation effect where I see one of the problems is that people just don't, I have friends who are really into like mediation and wanting to do depolarization work. And they're like, I don't even know where to meet Republicans. Like, where do I go? Like, I'm like, they're serious. Like I'm looking for them. Like they live in Portland. They're like, where gun do store. I go? What's that? I said, go to the gun store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So it's like, how do you know, how to go into different kind of cultural spaces that are different from what you would normally go into and then try to interact with people, of different views to get a, you know, so you break your straw man caricature that you're holding of them in your head. Right. 
but also this this aspect of what you alluded to the people being very politically fluid right it's like yeah it depends on who the candidate is depends on what the candidate's for depends on their character i could they maybe have a d or an r in front of their name doesn't really matter uh but i'm just gonna vote uh and it could change every year right and now it's like we're so entrenched into this kind of uh, we've merged party with our identities and and thinking that people could be fluidly going back and forth that it's very hard to conceive of today so just wanted to throw it in there for nate I mean, that's true, real quick. I, I just want to respond to that yeah. super quick. Sorry to jump in, Nate. Um, I do think that some of the way that feels true is an artifact of how people like us spend so much time online. We're all kind of extremely online and on Twitter a lot. You know, like I have cousins and family on both my 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 birth family and, and my family in-law who were are in the very large group of people that voted for Obama in 2012 and then Trump in 2016. There's tens of millions of people in that group in this country. And just because they're not in the extremely online sphere and very active on Twitter doesn't mean they don't exist. But um, that, that's all I really uh, wanted to throw in the mix there. So Nate, I'll pass it over to you. I want to go back to, to New York City as an example. I've been kind of just chewing on that because I think New York City is, first of all, New York City, people around the world think of New York City as representative of America still. And we used to think of ourselves in that way too. America or New York City is 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 like the world compacted down into a city. So you can't help but to be fluid because maybe you live in Little Italy, but still there's another neighborhood that's radically different, two streets over, and you have to meet these people. Um, and I and I and it's I think New York City is still a weird city because it still has it can go pretty far to the right for a big city in a way that Portland can't because Portland is such a uh, a heady city. It was it was built uh, in a time in America where we were already, I think, coming up into the, the head. We weren't embodied people anymore, like people in New York are. And you know, they they speak down from the throat. They're they're, they're like very embodied people. Um, I think maybe a metaphor to use is to say we should become less of a mental uh, political people and more of a political body again. Um, and also, it, it, we I, I'm thinking about. Uh, Wilhelm Reich, um, who he, he talks about free, the free flow of the energy of the body. So again, there's that fluidity notion um, and the balkanization of the different sections of the body that happens with, with trauma. When you're traumatized, you, the parts of your body, they operate as independent entities. And so your chest is breathing air, but your diaphragm's not involved whatsoever. And this screws everything up as a body. Um, and I, I know, Evan, like you're, you're very involved with, with um, all these embodied practices, the Zen body being your reference a lot. Um, can you, can you, I'd like to go into that, that sphere. Totally. Let's do it. Um, I'm so glad you brought up Reich and his like character armor concept, basically, mm -hmm. um, is what I'm hearing here. And, and I, I love this lens. Um, I do want to mention that as a segue from the previous topic, I think that there's a lot of nuance here and things can transition faster than we might think because yeah, Portland is this super liberal thing and this super heady place. But, you know, in 1844, um, the provisional government of the territory of Oregon passed a black exclusion law, which caused black people who attempted to settle in Oregon to be whipped 39 times every six months until they left. I might be wrong on the number of months, but that was a thing, right? And yet Portland has become the place that it is now. So these cultural dynamics are not written in stone and they can shift over, you know, a hundred year period pretty easily. Um, so, so with that being said, I think that that's actually kind of related to the thing you were bringing up about, about right. You know, I think that um, for a variety of reasons, um, we have uh, 
as a consequence of a lot of different factors, become mainly a disembodied society. You know, um, New York as much as Portland um, and, and the South where I grew up, uh, same thing. You know, um, I grew up in North Florida, 15 minutes from the Georgia border. And, you know, you see this everywhere. Um, even people close to the land, farmers. Well, now farming means hopping on a gigantic machine from John Deere and air-conditioned comfort and pressing some buttons for the most part, right? Um, back to the landers and homesteaders and notwithstanding, but those aren't the people that are the agricultural heart and soul of America anymore. Those are weirdos like me. So, um, you know, I think that that this disembodiment, you know, you want to look at it through a sort of lens of chakras or something like that, or the circuits and uh, Timothy Leary's eight circuit model, um, as taken up by, say, Robert Anton Wilson from Atheist Rising, who also references Wilhelm Reich a lot in, in that work and his other work. Well, you know, we, we very much lost touch with like the lower chakras with without anything really below here, you know, and we're very much up here. And I think that, you know, I was in a discussion recently on a retreat with some people and, you know, we were discussing the ways in which it's critically important to remember that, you know, we still have to sort of share the planet with each other, you know, regardless of all of this stuff, these ideas, we may have these different ontologies and models that float around in our heads that, you know, we have to maintain a commitment to, to still share the world with each other. And my, my immediate reaction to this was, yeah, we, we do. It's literally called having a body. You can't get out of that part. You have made a commitment, whether you believe in reincarnation or you believe that your soul came from God or you're an atheist, whatever. At a certain point, a decision was made before you were you. That's you're going to be here. You're going to have a body and you're going to share this space with other beings that have bodies and are in some sense meaningfully distinct from yourself. And so to the extent that we deny our access to the energies of the body, the feelings of the body, the places that we store memories in our bodies, then, then we're going to be missing a hugely important data stream for doing sense-making and choice-making about how to get along together. You know, I mean, if we were in the matrix and we were carving up processor space and memory allocation, then politics would look a lot different and probably be a lot easier. But, but we have particular bodies tied to particular places, particular ancestral lineages and histories in those places. And you know, this counts for a lot in the sort of creatures that we are, you know, um, like on my mom's side of the family, we've been in Florida for over 500 years, right? And, and there's a certain connection to place there that if I just ignore my body and I ignore where I came from, I'm going to be missing hugely important parts of what makes me me and, and how that can inform and, and must and will inform how I relate to others. So, you know, with, with the embodiment picture, it's like, you know, I wish it were this easy, but I kind of think it at a some level might be like, I wonder what would happen if, if people in general could just remember to breathe using the diaphragm in the way that you described and, and, and did that more and prior to having ideological debates with people about high stakes political topics. Yeah, I think if you can get belly laughing with someone of a totally different ideological uh, background than you. That's more. That's more sense making than, than can be done in a year of, of heady conversations on Zoom. You know, and, and here at Meta Ideological Politics, like, you know, I think at least half of our pillars have to do with getting out into the world, meeting people, looking people in the eye, uh, hopefully getting to somewhere where you're genuinely in an embodied relationship. And and I think athleticism is a big part of that too. Um, you know, it's sports. Play sports with people. You know get moving with people. Definitely. And I mean, this is, this is what I, I, I find to be really valuable myself too. You know, I, I moved to a new community. I want to figure out like, 
where's the farmer's market? Uh, you, the people you talk to there, it may be a liberal thing to shop at farmer's markets, but a lot of the people in the stalls are not going to be your typical liberals. They're going to have a lot of opinions that may run straight in the face of a conventional liberal ideology. You know, you go out to a soccer pitch or a pickup football game or you know frisbee game and can find people from all over the spectrum there too. And I mean, I, I was joking, but not joking. I, I really think that, you know, I like to go check out the gun stores. I like to go hang out and have conversations there because I can always get into a wonderful debate with people about, you know, like, like five, five, six versus six, five Creedmoor. And it doesn't matter what their political opinions are. That's going to be a fun debate. Um, and it turns out that, you know, if you start the conversation that way, they're going to care a lot less that you're some kind of liberal after you've sort of demonstrated an interest in something that matters to them, right? Um, that also matters to you. And, you know, this is a thing that I, I see happen not enough. And sometimes now people even have reacted to suspicion um, with suspicion, this particular move I like to pull, which is start by finding a place of commonality and agreement. I, I like to, when I meet people, figure out, well, what do we have in common, you know? And then we can establish that common shared understanding and then maybe figure out what we disagree on and have our debates and fights and arguments. But I've actually recently been told that that was sort of suspicious and manipulative, which I found to be a deeply disturbing sign of the times when someone was suspicious of me because I was trying to find a thing that we agreed about that we could then base our conversation about. And they were trying to go straight for the disagreement. I'm, oh boy, I think we just need to take some deep breaths together. Then we can at least agree that we just did that. You know, one of the words I used to call, um, talk about getting greeted with suspicion, right? I used to call it mimetic infiltration instead of mimetic mediation, right? It's like, I'm going to actually go to a completely different world, right? Gun stores, evangelical Christian church, Black Lives Matter rally, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, whatever, and just start interacting with people and talking to people, kind of imbibing their worldview, building relationships, building friendships. Layman Pascal said I should call it meta-diplomacy instead, a little bit more diplomatic of a term. But <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I love I love that impulse, right? And, and something David Snowden talks a lot about where he really savages, I mean, he savages a lot of things and a lot of people, but he, he particularly savages depolarization workshop models like Braver Angels where you get reds and blues together in a room and then you kind of talk very systematically about certain you know polarizing topics and you leave. He's like that, he's like, there's no evidence that it actually works, right? Like get people together to frame views, go out into the community, do physical projects together. Like that's what actually really helps, right? And don't don't broach politics until uh, a few days later. And then when you do, it's over beers. At the end of the day, is hard work together, right? So there is really something to be said about this embodiment and getting out of the headspace where we tend to dehumanize each other, right? And and work together tangibly, where we remember that we're human beings who have political opinions, uh, not we're not starting with political identity as a starting point, and then remembering later that oh yeah, you're also a person. Yeah, and I mean, in the political realm, too, this can even work, right? As long as you start with particular issues and not political identities. One of the coolest things I was a part of is during the Occupy movement times, right? I was down at, in my hometown, Occupy Tallahassee, and, you know, we were out there protesting the banks, uh, among other things, right? This is kind of how Occupy started. They bailed out the banks, not the people. We were super pissed about this, right? Well, you remember, this is the same time that and right-wing politics, the Tea Party was becoming pretty ascendant. We actually ran into the Tea Partiers of Tallahassee at the Capitol. They were protesting the banks too. So we set a date that they would come to the Occupy encampment and we'd sit down and talk about each of our perspectives on things. And, you know, it turned out that it was mainly like 
grizzled, middle-aged and older people in the Tea Party, um, very racially homogenous, as you might expect. And, you know, then we had this young, diverse crowd in the Occupy camp, and we had a really wonderful, civil, cordial conversation where we agreed that when we were protesting the stuff that they cared about, too, we'd give them a shout and they'd show up and protest with us, you know, because they could get over the fact that we're some kind of godless communists or something and, you know, realize like, hey, we all hate the banks. So let, let's let's combine forces on that and talk about a thing where you can, you know, like, like work together. I mean, protesting all day and the Florida heat is, is that's some hard physical labor. Um, and, you know, then afterwards I, I went to a dive bar with some of these guys and drank some PBRs and talked about guns. And it was, it was a fine time. And, um, you know, this is one of the things that you used to see a lot more of in American politics is coalitions forming that were not the same thing as political parties. Like you think about the move to criminalize drunk driving, the mothers against drunk driving thing, right? This spanned the political divide. People who were mothers who had lost children or husbands or other loved ones and in, in incidents involving drunk driving banded together, regardless of how they felt about other issues, about the war and Vietnam, about any of this stuff. And they said, no, no more of this drunk driving thing. And now we have pretty stringent laws against that, which I think are a good thing. You know, um, I know too many people that have been killed in that particular way. So um, we have a long and rich history of finding issues that we agree about and working with people on those issues, regardless of whether they share our religion or our, our, our feelings about other issues. And, you know, to the extent that we can sort of shed the shackles of political identity as the basis of our identities at large, then I think that, you know, this becomes a pretty easy problem at that point. But of course, that's that's the hard bit, right? You know, is, is, is overcoming that basis of identity. And I mean, this is, this is incredibly hard because, um, you know, you guys have probably heard me on the STOA talk about, uh, something that I like to use the word egregore for, right? So an egregore is something from the Western, um, esoteric tradition, think like hermetic Kabbalah and alchemy. And, uh, it refers to basically a sort of thought form, which has its own sort of agency. If you've read American Gods by Neil Gaiman, the gods in that are egregores uh, in the classical sense, you know, something given its own force and agency by human belief. And so I personally believe that the left and the right, the Democrats and the Republicans have become egregores. And now there's a feedback loop whereby they feed on our worship and they only give us outrage in return. And so these are basically parasitic egregores. They're not good for us. We're in a bad kind of relationship with them. And so I hope that people can realize that their political identitarian affiliation is basically a parasitic egregore that only gives them outrage and misery and doesn't give them anything positive in return while sucking out a lot of their attention, life force, chi, energy, whatever you want to call it. And so if we can just say no to participation in parasitic egregores, then we might be able to recover our individual human connection with each other and, you know, actually get some shit done in the world. That was powerful. There's something really powerful about mythologizing and it's kind of archetype, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and it hits harder. It hits deeper than merely explaining it intellectually. Yeah. As a parasite, I think to think of, to think of it as a parasite, something from without, and then the idea is to develop a robust immune system, which, which really is, is a, a very diverse immune system. You want to have all kinds of different bacteria, um, which, you know, that, that's, that's what De De Tocqueville, he said, was unique about America at, our t at the time of our finding is, founding is that people could come together in these associations that had really no ideological bearing whatsoever. And I think that you can make the, uh, and I'm, again, I'm doing the body metaphor, um, you know, that, that's to have a robust immune system that inoculizes you against that totalitarian impulse. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, I think that part of 
you know, one thing that we talk a lot about in these meta spaces is the noosphere, right? Which, you know, terminology, I believe, came from Teilhard de Chardin. Um, but he talks about this as a new field of evolutionary development. And so just like we have creatures and collective entities, you know, we are colony organisms made up of 10 to the 13th human cells and 10 to the 14th bacterial cells, right? There are going to be such collective entities and agencies in the noosphere, not just in the biosphere. A good word for this is egregore. We've already got it. I like to use it. So, you know, I think that sort of increasing our awareness of the evolutionary dynamics and the particular kinds of creatures which arise in the noosphere is going to be a crucial survival skill for networked humanity in the 21st century because these things exist whether we see them or not. You know, it's like uh, Philip K. Dick said, reality is that which when you cease to believe in it doesn't go away. Well, you know, you can disbelieve in egregores all you want, and you can come up with your own models of how political polarization is operating and the feedback dynamics. And I think they're going to converge on something like egregoric meta agents. You know, um, you'll eventually see that it doesn't go away, even if you don't believe in it. Um, and so given that, there's a lot of wisdom in some of these ancient wisdom traditions, everything from, you know, um, I honestly kind of believe that what what the Abrahamic religions speak of as demons are are the sort of parasitic egregores, which I'm I'm mentioning here. Um, you know, like Moloch and Baal and this sort of thing is uh, well, these are these are demonic egregores, and um, we also have positive egregores, right? Um, which which have served as inspiration. And you know, like when we look at the particular dynamics of political conflict that we see now, I like to think of it as a sort of um, a question of whether we want to be aligned with Ares or Athena. Right. So it's fascinating to me that the Greeks had two separate gods of war. Ares was the god of war as people who participated in wars all the time and knew how much they fucking sucked would have imagined a god of war. Right. Ares is a total hothead and a total dumbass. He gets imprisoned for like years or months in a bronze vessel by some opponent because he's, a, he's an idiot. He gets like people get him drunk and he, you know, sort of like screws up all the time and he's like constantly just messing things up. Right. So that's, that's the sort of male valenced God of war. Right. Then you've got Athena. She's the goddess of war, but she's also the goddess of something called techne, which people translate as crafts, but is also the root of technology. She's also the patroness of those who have significant metis, which I talk a lot about on the stoa this sort of um, later word they used for it in, uh, in later times of Greek philosophy was phronesis, starting with uh, Plato and Aristotle. It's the same thing, though, this sort of practical wisdom. And so you combine this practical wisdom with crafts, and you get technology. And um, notice that the role of technology in warfare has been increasing. I mean, it used to be about how many men you could field and how long a supply chain of horses you could have. And now it's, a, I mean, look at World War II, the Manhattan Project, this determined the course of the war. You get the radiation lab, which gives us transistors. You get, you know, the um, the uh, Enigma code-breaking project, which gets us the modern computer revolution, Turing complete computation. That's what Turing was working on when he invented this stuff, right? And so it's become abundantly clear that any sort of warfare that is going to have you emerge as the victor is going to depend on your skill with techne and your skill with metis. And so Athena is an alternate model of a goddess of conflict. And it's interesting to note that her primary weapon is not a sword, but a shield, right? The Aegis. And, and furthermore, that she is also the person who mythologically gave the concept of silver coinage and the concept of the alphabet to Eric Thonius, who was in some sense her son and is also the mythological founder of the city called Athens. So she's the kind of war goddess that has coinage, words, and 
defense as emphasis. And oh, we've got these wonderful things cropping up like cryptocurrencies, like Web 3.0 as a new evolution of the science of the word. Like, you know, we can be defensive, but not go on the attack, you know, when, when we're engaged in these sort of metapolitical conflicts. And so to me, the sort of well, we're going to do an egregoric thing. We might as well worship Athena instead of Ares um, if we're going to have to be in conflict, you know, because this seems to be a, a really sharp distinction um, that we can take from mythology and, and say, well, one of these is the kind of war that leaves scorched earth and nothing alive. And, and the other one is the kind of war that leads to a polis, that leads to a free state. And, you know, I, th I think that this is this is really important. And unfortunately, the current left-right political divide, the culture war, is very much the product of the sort of conflict which comes from an Aries orientation. And so I, I, I would, you know, if people can parse those mythological metaphors that are sort of at the root of Western civilization, I think we should shift into more of an, Air, uh, an Athena orientation with respect to conflict as opposed to an Aries orientation with respect to conflict. This is great. So let's let's keep playing with those metaphors, though, right? So Nate and I, for better or for worse, both have uh, political aspirations and are interested in actually running for office. If we, if our intention, if our goal is to kind of inspire this Athenian style of politics writ large, how does one outcompete the Aries energy, right? When you're going up against an Aries and all of the raw, carnal, you know, amygdala hijacking power of that kind of energy. How do you get more votes than than Aries type of candidate, than Aries type of campaigning or messaging? Well, this is where Metis comes in. Athena's mother, mythologically, was Metis, right? The Titaness of wisdom. So, um, you know, in, in my Stoic sessions, I describe quite clearly the sort of paths that I think lead to Metis, right? Um, and and so cultivation of Metis, which is also associated with strategic and tactical cunning, right? Like Odysseus came up with the idea for the Trojan horse. This is an example of Metis as applied to warfare, right? Athena's champions, the ones who she selected to bear her energy into the world, basically personally ridded the world of something like over half of the psychopathic serial killer type offspring of Ares, Heracles, Hercules was one of her champions. So was Odysseus, so, you know, and so on, right? So you look at the people they killed, they killed a lot of Ares' sons, they, 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 they won. Right. And so Metis and Techne in combination. So uh, tactical cunning and present moment sense making awareness plus mastery of technology. This is how we win. Right. So the question is not, you know, like you ask, well, how do we compete against this Aries thing? Well, what's one of its main manifestations in, in the world today is, is the phenomenon that we on the SOA often call limbic hijack. Right. You know, it works by, hijacking the limbic systems of people through evolutionary super stimulus embedded in advertising and discourse um, that then causes them. Well, I mean, I used to teach people this when I taught the um, prep classes for the law school admissions test, right? Would teach them about the dynamics that people now call limbic hijack, uh, this sympathetic nervous system activation. It literally causes blood to be diverted away from the prefrontal cortex and to the skeletal muscles, right? It gets you ready for a fight or flight response. You think having blood diverted away from your brain is good for sense-making? Because that doesn't seem reasonable a priori. So, you know, first I would say we, we, we must cultivate the skill set within ourselves first and foremost, which creates uh, resistance to, and hopefully ultimately invulnerability to limbic hijack. And then, you know, I'm enough of a hippie to say that I think that energy is kind of real. And when you're interacting with people, they can pick up on your vibe 
And so if you are not getting triggered, if you're not getting all fight or flight, you know, ready to, to get into it, this blood flow diverting to your muscles, people sense that. And it helps put them at ease, you know, and I, I really think that almost hippie style, there's some real ripple effects that can come from an increasing cohort of people who are immune to the limbic hijack effects of political advertising and political discourse in this country and who can take up the role of mediator, facilitator, you know, um, the occupier of the liminal spaces between warring tribes and, and, and you know, um, in this sense to be kind of trite about it, be the change we want to see in the world. Just uh, an observation, I, I think, um, without without saying that any, you know, candidates so far have been particularly zen, uh, you will notice the candidates who have the most relaxed body language on a stage are typically the ones who do better, the ones who are more ready to laugh and more ready to smile and, uh, you know, take things on the chin. So yeah, I, I think you're you're totally right there. I mean, there's this common wisdom you get from like, you know, everyone from pickup artists to psychologists and everyone in between, which is, you know, the person that gets mad, that gets visibly angry in an argument is generally seen as the loser. And that's been known since Aristotle writing about rhetoric, right? So it, it's, it's a fundamental human skill to when you're in a situation of verbal conflict, can you just roll with it, you know, and not get all triggered because first person that does that is going to be viewed by most humans watching it. You know, even nobody, somebody's never studied body language, like, we come with the ability to read that built in, right? And, and everybody knows when somebody's getting flustered, when they can't handle their shit, when somebody's scoring points on them and they feel it, you know? And the more that you can not get flustered, not lose your shit, um, not visibly have points scored on you in some sort of adversarial context, then the more people are going to listen to what you have to say. One of the things I joke about, but that's actually serious on this podcast is I don't know what to call this. I've been jokingly calling it the Nakata Doctrine, which is that we're open to any kind of criticism or feedback or critiques of what we're doing, but under one condition, you have to promise that you're going to attack us with everything you have, no holds barred. And if we can agree on that as a starting point, then it's good. You know, we'll feel free to come on and show us what you got. But uh, that's the starting point. Um, and to me, it was kind of like an Aikido move, right? It's like, you have to like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to you, right? But we have to agree that you're going to take off the gloves and put on the brass, you know, uh, knuckles and, and, uh, and show us what you have and I'll just take it, whatever you have. And that's exactly the sort of thing I mean here is you've developed some skill set and capacities in yourself where you can, you can handle someone coming at you with the metaphorical brass knuckles. And, you know, um, from everything I've seen, you can handle this in a very skillful fashion, very Aikido, like redirect the energy. It's not hard. Um, it's not attacking back. And, you know, who knows what ripple effects that'll have, man. Maybe there's somebody who really has been dying for the opportunity to go full on attack and take out those brass knuckles, get those claws out. And if they get to savage you a little bit, then maybe in the next political interaction that they have, there's a little bit more softness they can embody. It seems like it might spread. Well, this has been a fantastic talk. Um, anything else, Nate, before we... Oh, I, I'll just echo that. It's been fantastic. I would urge everybody to look into... Evan's uh, talks on the Stoa, I thought they were brilliant. Um, the series he did on uh, the bridge, there's, I think there's four sessions. There's actually there seven at this point. Oh, um, seven. There, will, there will be a couple more coming. Um, I owe oh. Peter some descriptions and they should be up on the website soon. So um, give you guys a little preview if you want. The next one I'm doing is called A Bridge to a Handcrafted Life and is about um, actually related to the discussion of metis and techne, the, the role that 
physically crafting things with one's hands has as a sort of missing middle in the ecosystem of practices or the practice stack as, as I see it currently today. So um, mm -hmm. it's me talking about intention and how we compile and manifest intention in the world. And uh, you know, if people are interested in that, feel free to, to look that up on the Stoa as soon as it's posted, should be soon. Beautiful. Fantastic. I, when you said that, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense that it is missing, but I never thought that that was what was missing. <laughs> so yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, Evan, thank you so much, brother. And, and just to put this out while we're recording, I, I hope that uh, if you're interested, you can be a kind of recurring guest or, you know, friend yeah. of the show. Uh, one of the, there were several people, I, several individuals I had in mind while starting this podcast. Uh, you were one of them. Laban Pascal was another one. Peter Lindbergh was another one. Um, you know, and, and a few other people we know. So thank you so much for your time and for all your wisdom and insight and, and lucid brilliance. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate the uh, opportunity to be on the show. I'd love to take you up on that. Um, definitely, you know, let me know next time it feels right. And uh, assuming schedules work out, I'm always happy to, to join you guys, whether uh, singly or in, in a group discussion. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's something that could be cool too. Um, I love everybody you just mentioned as friends of the show. I definitely count myself as a, as a friend and supporter of, of this show and, and of all, all the work you guys do. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on here and, uh, and have a conversation with you all. Fantastic. Well, thank I you so much. It.